You're listening to Talking Tricks, the home of amazing stories from magic, circus, variety and comedy performers. Hello and welcome to Talking Tricks, a brand new podcast presented by us, Kane and Abel, two people with the exact same voice. Each week we will bring you news, views and in-depth interviews from the world of entertainment. So if you have an interest in magic, circus, variety, comedy or just listening to a good story, make sure you subscribe to Talking Tricks on iTunes and Podbean. So we will waste no time in getting into it with today's guest. He's one of the most highly regarded magicians, comedians and cabaret stars on the planet. Paul Debeck joins us in a moment. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Paul Debeck is a very interesting, exciting man. He's achieved a lot in his life, but his biggest accolade is he can be known as my 2011 Friend of the Year. That is true. I was Friend of the Year. I thought I'd won Friend of the Year more than one year. Yeah, I think you had it a few years rolling. That's okay, but 2011 was a good... I think that was my first year. That was your big year. (laughs) That was my big year. Yeah, I, I think... Probably because some pretty debauched shenanigans went on that year. I probably had gone through quite a lot of um, shame that year, being your friend. Yeah, and I think a lot of important people stopped being my friend, which opened up... <laughs> yeah, that's probably true. ...opened up the possibilities for someone to thanks. swoop in. Yeah, well, thanks. I love the fact that you've just snatched that from me, what, seven years later, I finally find that, yeah. Okay, fair enough. It's all about circumstances, isn't it? <laughs> it's about what you needed at the time, let's be honest. And now, all these years later, I, what I need is a, is a great guest <laughs> for this podcast. And Friend of the Year 2010 was not available. No, no, no okay. we're not speaking anymore. <laughs> now, to kick us off, because I think I know too much about you. <laughs> it's true, it's true. You know too much. I'm hoping our listeners might know a little bit about you, but to familiarise people with the man, the myth, the legend that is Paul Debeck. Oh. We're going to start by playing a very exciting game. Oh, yeah? The game we're going to start to help people get to know you a little bit more... Yes. ...is called Debeck or Dubeck. Right. Okay. So in this game, I will read out some facts Uh about either Paul Debeck... Yeah. ...or Strictly Come Dancing, Housewife's (laughs) favourite... Anton Dubeck. <laughs> All you have to do is tell us who they belong to. <laughs> okay, okay. And if it's a Dubeck fact, maybe elaborate a little bit. <laughs> okay, okay. Dubeck or Dubeck? I left school at age 16 and worked a number of day jobs whilst developing my talent in the evenings. Anton Dubeck. It is Anton Dubeck. <laughs> it is Anton Dubeck because I never had a job, practically. <laughs> I was, I've been unemployable since the age of 16. I did leave school at 16, though. I did leave school at 16. And I had maybe, I think I had a couple of jobs before I left school. Like, I worked in a butcher's shop for a little while. I worked in a tea room for a little while. But, um... Yeah, pretty much this has been the only... Once I'd left school at 16, that was it. I was pretty much straight into the old magic malarkey. So, yeah, that's Anton Dubeck. It is Anton Dubeck, so that is one prize, and you get one lint chocolate that oh. I'll give to you at some point. Oh, because then, yeah, they're not actually here. Well, they that's don't. The, that's the magic of podcast. They could be here. Uh, yeah. Mmm, these lint chocolates, is that, they look delicious. <laughs> Can I have one? Don't, don't open it, because the rustling <laughs> will cut off the listeners. 
Dabag or Dubag? Fact number two. My first ever television appearance was on BBC One. My first ever television appearance was on BBC One. Was it? Oh, God. I don't... I think it must be Anton Dubac, is it? Or is it me? When was your first ever television appearance? I can't remember my first one. My first one was, I think, Exchange, which was... Was that on BBC One? Or was that on the CBBC channel? On BBC One. Was it? I think so. You don't know, do you, either? I was thinking of what I've You were thinking of Blue Peter, weren't you? I was thinking No, of I was Peter. on TV twice before I went on Blue Peter. Oh, wow. You are not going to win Friend of the Year 2018, that's for sure. Oh, well, that's... Well, I would have thought you would have handed that out by now. <laughs> no, we'll, we'll have to see. There's still time with 2019. When all the gigs and bookings come in from people <laughs> listening to this, I'll be a shoo <laughs> You'll be... You'll be... Yeah, absolutely. You will definitely beat your better-looking, more witty twin brother. Well, I can tell you what we've got here in the official answer. <laughs> yeah, OK. Is that... An official, i.e. the one that you've written. Yep. OK. Is that Anton Debeck's first TV appearance <laughs> yeah. was on BBC One prime time. Oh, yeah. In Strictly Come Dancing. OK. We've got here that Paul Debeck did appear on BBC One tea time. I did. With Blue Peter. With Blue Peter Halloween special. What led to that? What led to that? I'd done some, I think it was the CBBC channel. I'd been on Exchange, which was a kids programme, a couple of times. And then the BBC contacted me because they wanted me to saw Connie Huck in half. And so that's what I did. I went down for a Halloween special. It was in the it was it was in the Blue Peter Garden, which smelt of can we swear on here? No. Yes. Yeah, it smelt of dog shit, basically, because Paul O'Grady's dog had got diarrhea and he'd kept taking the dog out to the garden whilst they were filming something. I don't know. Just like you're not able to smell the rich aroma of these delicious Swiss chocolates that I'm about to start eating or not. You couldn't smell that on the Halloween special. But yeah, so we were all there was me, there was a boy band called Fix. Do you remember them? No, no one does. I sawed Connie Huck in half. I did. I did the uh, the old jigsaw sawing in half. Went down on the train and did it, and and got and got paid quite well for a seventeen year old magician. I was seventeen, eighteen, something like that. We won't talk about it too much. I've seen the footage since. You've had it removed from YouTube many a times, but I keep putting it back <laughs> on. <laughs> it is there. It is there somewhere. Yeah. And the reason they invited you on, before we get back into the game, yeah. is because you were the current Young Magician of the oh, Year at that point. that's right. Yes, yes, I was. That's exactly why. Yeah, I was the current Young Magician of the Year. Yes, so I must have been about 17. So what led you to enter the Young Magician of the Year and win it? I knew about it because I'd been watching... I remember growing up, like, watching Dominic Wood on CBBC as a kid. Loved all the magic that he used to do. And he'd talked about this competition, Young Magician of the Year. I started practising magic. And then I I heard, heard about the Young Magicians Club. And I entered the Junior Day, Reading Junior Day. Uh, I wasn't actually a member, but I went down and entered that. Was very lucky. Won that. And so... It, it seemed that it was a good sidestep to go into the Young Magician competition. And so I... Yeah. <laughs> you know why I'm laughing, don't you? I'm laughing. I'm laughing because Lawrence is just basically visualising my act at the time right now, which, uh, shall we say, was dramatic, theatrical. Timeless. <laughs> timeless, yeah. Worthless. <laughs> my timeless. Um, yeah, so I entered that with my little dove act. 
won that and I just thought the whole world was going to offer me a job after I'd won that you know Dominic Wood had got on CBC I thought I've got my eight minutes I'm set that was not the case but it did give me a really nice springboard into you know being starting to be known in the magic world a little bit and I did conventions and I met lots of really nice people and so I think always is the case when you're the kind of the young the young up-and-coming or the young hotshot or the young the young latest young magician you get put on the bill with all these world-class magicians now at the time I look back at the act now and I think god I was not world-class but because you're the latest youngster coming through you end up meeting all these incredible performers it was really really good to me and I'm, I'm very grateful for winning it I'm just at the point now where I'm trying not I try not to get introduced as a past young magician of the year because it just I think you get to the point where it's like yes here he is young magician of the year 1965 John Lenehan gave me a really good introduction once I was on a show with him and he said now ladies and gentlemen our next performer is young magician of the year but then again who isn't please welcome Paul Devec so yeah but it was it was it was very good for me and uh it was a big confidence boost i could get out there and perform and be a professional magician and uh, a good springboard and a good start to your career but the question is was the following phrase uttered about former young magician of the year paul de beck or <laughs> was it used to describe strictly's housewife's favorite anton <laughs> Dabek or Dubek? Witty, charismatic and a natural entertainer. <laughs> I don't know, it's, it's Anton, isn't it? Of it's course it's Anton! Yeah, of course it is! There's nothing natural about your entertaining. <laughs> it's all forced and worked. <laughs> it's true. <laughs> it's nothing natural about it's nothing natural about Anton's jawline either, is there? But, you know. Uh, he'd say the same about your nose. <laughs> Have you shown this level of professionalism with all your guests? You Absolutely. Nice. Absolutely. Great. Okay, one more for you. Dabek or Dubek? Who is this? Hang on, what's happened to my chocolates? Oh, I'll, I'll slide them <laughs> under the table too. And those uh, imaginary chocolates. Go on. So you did get that one correct. So that's, okay. that's two. Okay. Was this used to describe Paul Dubeck or Anton Dubeck, a born showman? I've had showman quite a few times. It's been quite good but annoying because, like, every time I have a Paul quote, they say showman, so I can't... I, I always want a new bit of promo to put on the posters. I think just to even up the kill, I'm going to hope it was said about me. Was it? I'm afraid oh. it was... <laughs> it's an Anton no. Dubeck. He came out of the womb dancing. <laughs> oh, no. Oh, someone called me a showman once. <laughs> well, I've got one more for you here. Who was this used to describe? Superb showman. Oh, well, that's, that's the same. That's the same pull quote I've used on every single poster <laughs> ever. So unless you're going to really shatter my, uh, shatter my publicity for the past few years, that was hopefully me. It was correct. It was a Paul de Beck, yay! That was used to describe your live show when you're the birds are away. You're a talker now. Mm-hmm. Um, machine gun delivery uh-huh. is, is another one used to describe you. So talk to us a little bit about when you kind of progressed from an eight minute teenage 
superstar with the dance <laughs> um, to a superb showman. Because I'd been earning my living doing magic anyway, I'd been doing two sorts of gigs, really. I'd been doing all the stuff we normally do of weddings and village halls and round table dinners and all that sort of doing comedy magic. And then I'd been going around doing a few cruise ships and before that holiday parks and other things, doing the kind of more slick theatrical, (laughs) what I would call now cringeworthy magic. And I just started to realise the difference between someone phoning us for a gig and saying, oh, I'm looking for a magician, or we saw you somewhere and we'd really like you to come and do this. Because I just realised that sort of personality, I guess, was key. And that was the one thing that nobody could do better than you. It's a bit cliche, but it's really true. And I just enjoyed it more. I just really enjoy making people laugh. And, you know, some of my favourite magic acts are comedy acts. And just playing with that as well, you know, because it's interesting, like, over, over the last few years in my one-man shows, I've weirdly brought a lot of those things that I learnt in the silent act and in the more theatrical stuff into the comedy show because it's this weird juxtaposition and you can suddenly send it up or go a different way or do something really visual. And people are like, well, where did that come from? The first year I did the Edinburgh Fringe was probably the first step out of going, I'm not doing my big silks and linking ring routines and music and all these lighting effects and stuff. I'm going to do me a bit more. And and so I did Edinburgh my first year, had a really great run up there and realised, yeah, this is what I should be concentrating on. And I haven't really looked back since then. I think the great thing with Edinburgh is actually you often end up being in a really stripped down venue and that means you have to rely more on your personality, Mm. uh, winning people across that way, as opposed to having all the lovely lighting and audio cues and things like that. How many years have you been going up to, to Edinburgh now? It's been quite a lot. Yeah, I've done eight years in Edinburgh, nine or ten shows, because there was a couple of years I had a couple of shows up there. So yeah, I've done eight eight festivals, and then I just went, this was my ninth one, but I, I didn't have a, a venue show this year. I just came, kind of took a break, uh, because we had a move to the States and things, and, uh, and just enjoyed it, and just went and saw some great shows, and uh, did a few street shows. Eight years of my one-man show, I did a, a one-man play there one year as well, and the I Hate Children Children show. And the play... I unfortunately never saw, but it, it's something very interesting. I know any magicians that are listening to this um, will be interested to know. It was a play about Howard Thurston. Yeah, that's right. It was um, loosely based, or certainly it, it kind of took a, a leap from Jim Steinmeier's book about Howard Thurston and Harry Houdini. And uh, me and a friend of mine, Russ Tunney, who's a great director and, and writer from uh, Southampton, from the Nuffield, wrote this this one-man play and I took it up there and it was probably the most stressful, challenging thing I've ever done. It's an, an hour of script with no deviation. It's not like, you know, when you do an hour one-man show and you're presenting yourself, you know, if you go off script a little bit, it doesn't really matter too much, you can bring it back or whatever. But to do play, I was playing two two characters with no one to bounce off, no no cue lines, 
But I was very proud of the show. And the Scotsman came and reviewed it, gave us four stars. And then we never did anything with it. <laughs> it's, I was just talking to um, uh, Mike Caveney about the possibility of going and doing it at the castle or somewhere in L.A., but it'd be an awful lot of work. It was a beautiful piece of writing. Russ did an amazing job on it. And, uh, yeah, it's something I keep in the pipeline for future. Maybe we, we talked about writing it actually as a two-hander because I think it would actually be a, a lot nicer as a two-hander. But, uh, yeah, it was called I Wouldn't Deceive You for the World, and which was, you know, one of Thurston's old lines. So, yeah, that was a lot of fun. You've mentioned a lot of things in that answer that are things I want to talk to you about. Okay. Uh, so we'll... we'll develop on that in a moment but before then we've got a few more dubet no! that we've we've got to cover here because well, people want a whole know, box of chocolates when's this game gonna end yeah absolutely so okay. dubet or dubet my stage name <laughs> yes. is a more exotic version of my given name that's got to be anton dubet do you mean Anthony Paul Beck. <laughs> really? Paul? Wow. Oh. <laughs> he sexed it up for the show, He did, didn't he? he? He just put a little bit of glitter and a Cuban heel on that name and he sauntered out and he just he shimmied his way to the top, hasn't he? Some could say it's similar for your name because your name is your real name, but you've got rid of a bit of it. Oh, yes, that's right. Yeah, I've got rid of a bit of my name. But, but Paul, Paul de Beck is actually my, yeah, it's in my passport. But there's a little bit at the end. That we won't talk about. We won't talk about it. Because that Paul sounds like he works in a bank. <laughs> <laughs> okay, one more. And then there's a secret one, which I'm going to wait until the end to ask. I really hope that this is successful and you can get Anton Dubeck on here. That's on the, the dream. That's the dream, that's obviously. The dream. Yeah, I am just a stepping stone to... The do the do back coming on. We'll play this game with him, and then he will win 2019 Friend of the Year. Yeah. Okay. Oh, I see. That's how that goes. Okay. You're a filler. (laughs) I will be kicking off a brand new tour in 2019. Well, Anton, me? Well, I am going on a brand new tour in 2019. Is it Paul Debeck? It is Paul Debeck. Oh, okay. Yeah. Yay! <laughs> Tell us about the tour. The tour? Um, well, it's not my tour. I'm on tour uh, with The Illusionists, which is very, very exciting. Um, yeah, I'm doing the, uh, the US tour from end of February until the end of May. It's an amazing touring schedule all around the US and a week in Mexico. And we're going everywhere. We're going up and down the country. We've got some uh, set-down weeks where we're in the theatre for a week. Some of them are one-nighters. It's going to be a lot of fun. It's very exciting. It's going to be pretty intense. But, um, yeah, I'm going to see a lot of the states. So that will be exciting. Because, you know, I've, I've been in the U.S. quite a lot, but never really anywhere other than, you know, major cities on the coast. You know what it's like. You fly in L.A., New York, whatever. Never really spent any time in middle America. So that will be interesting. And for those that don't know, The Illusionist is the world's largest touring magic show. It's the, the best of the best. This is your second go with The Illusionist because you, you did a previous tour. April, May 2018, I did a, a, a short stint out in the Middle East for them, which was a lot of fun. Uh, for magicians that are listening, it was uh, myself, Darcy Oak, Jamie Raven, Ray Crow, uh, Crendel, 
deadly games. And you mentioned earlier when you were Young Magician of the Year, you were performing with loads of well-known, established acts, and you kind of learned bits from being around them. What did you learn from being around some of your fellow illusionists during that MIDI tour? It was amazing because I've done... I mean, I've done some gigs in some pretty big spaces, but when we opened in Forum in Abu Dhabi, which is just like a... It's just like an airplane hanger. It's like a black airplane hanger. It's huge. You know, you look at the stage and the stage is huge. And then you go to the back of the room and you look at the stage and it's dwarfed because it's just such a massive venue. And so, of course, you know, I was, um, yeah, you know, I put my brown underpants on that day. You know, they were just cool as a cucumber because a lot of them had worked those sides. You know, Darcy's just been out doing Calgary Stampede and huge audiences. And so it was really nice. It was a really nice group of people, really great to work with. Florian Savant was the other performer who just, who, how could I forget him? He just won the manipulation category at FISM uh, joint with Ahalim. So he was on the tour. Uh, he's now doing Now You See Me, uh, the live show out in China. Yeah, it was, just, it was just a really nice group of people under quite difficult circumstances. You know, anyone that's ever toured or performed out in the Middle East, which I've done before independently on my own, it can be quite stressful out there. You know, stuff doesn't get done. You know, you, people work in different cultures, different ideas of what is finished or done or ready. But it was a lot of fun. Yeah, it's very exciting. And I'm super excited to be, to be coming back and joining the, joining the tour next year. And how did it all come about for you then, the uh, the role in The Illusionist? Kind of completely out of the blue, really, because I'd had a couple of inquiries maybe four or five years ago about potentially going and doing something in The Illusionist, but I think it was just they were searching for someone. It wasn't particularly they wanted me. I think they were just looking for magicians that would fit the role, and nothing came of it. And then uh, last Edinburgh, a, uh, a friend of mine, a, a colleague, someone I've not performed with but as a producer of another magic show that I'd worked with in Adelaide he had been speaking to the producers uh, Simon Painter <clears throat> and uh, said oh this guy Paul Debeck would be would be good and so they sent someone to take a look at me in Edinburgh I sent my footage of my show to them with the proviso the explanation I should say that um, you know shall we say my Edinburgh show might not be completely family friendly so I just, you know, needed to explain to them that, you know, I wanted them to see footage of me working for a live audience, but it wasn't necessarily the subject matter that I would do for a show like theirs. And I got a phone call from Simon Painter, who's a really quite funny character, and he um, he told me he'd sat in his in his house in L.A. and watched the whole show, uh, laughing, and uh, that he never does that before. So that was a really nice uh, compliment. I think it's probably because he's... He likes British humour, even though he's uh, living out in the States. And um, he's British. They got me on board for a show called The Unbelievables, which ran in, in Reno. There was one in Oz and one in Reno, and I, ran, I hosted the one in Reno. And Simon came out and saw that. And, and you know, the rest is history. We sort of started working together. So, it's yeah, it's great. It's a dream come true, really. It's interesting because he said to me, he said, well, where, where have you been hiding for the past few years? And I said, well... I, you know, it just goes to show, you know, I'd been put forward for things for them and it just either wasn't the right time or it didn't get the footage. I didn't have the right footage or the right promo or whatever it was and it just didn't get into the right hands of the right person. It's a really good lesson to persevere with stuff and make sure you've got 
the best footage, the best promo, whatever it is, and you get it into the right hands. Probably less about the best promo and more about having really good, solid live footage of good shows. Because I think I don't know many producers now that, that really will book someone off the back of a promo because every, everyone can splice together anything and make it look good now. So they're kind of one camera at the back with a real audience reaction. I think they'd far rather watch some footage that's a little bit grainy or a little bit maybe not quite as professional as long as they can see how the act goes. So, yeah, it's pretty exciting. It's funny how uh, Simon asked you where you've been hiding, but the year prior to that, your show was called Look At Me. Absolutely, it was. Yeah, it was. It couldn't be that it was the most attention-seeking show. Maybe I knew. Maybe I knew that's what was happening. Look At Me. Yeah. Yeah. The magical attention seeker. Absolutely. But aren't we all, Lawrence? Aren't we all? I just want to quickly go back on the unbelievables, mm-hmm. you know, because I know a lot of our listeners will be speciality, variety acts, and that was a real mixed bill variety show. Um, tell us a little bit about it and kind of if you might have a little bit of maybe advice for someone that might be a juggler or a contortionist or, or whatever, and that's the kind of shows they're looking to get into. Yeah, so the show was amazing. I mean, I think, I can't really speak on behalf of the company, but I think that, uh, you know, they were all, couldn't have predicted quite how well the illusionists went. You know, I think it started as a co-production with Sydney Opera House, and, and it's just grown and grown and grown and it's done amazing numbers and it's as popular now as it has been the whole time so I think they they came up with this new concept which was um, the unbelievables which is obviously still a kind of mixed bill sort of superhero-esque type lineup but instead of the kind of uh, more smoky like uh, leather clad sort of illusionist style treatment they wanted to give it something a little bit more show busy and this here you go it, it was kind of had a, a dancing with the stars they call it in america or come dancing type treatment to it so it was big unapologetic flashy sequins high-end glitz and glamour so it kind of had that yesteryear feel to it but then it still felt current because dancing with the stars is around and, and, and strictly and things so it was myself, another magician, great magician called Sebastian Nicholas, who was a manipulator, jugglers, a contortion, shoulder ballet, which is pretty amazing, which is, uh, you know, a, a, a ballerina on point balancing on her, uh, a guy's shoulders and head. And it's an amazing act, amazing, amazing act. Um, we had uh, live musicians, Latin dancers, a, an actor from America's Got Talent, Saren Hero, great, uh, amazing dog act that did uh, just amazing dog agility and stuff. It was great. It was a great show. And we played for seven weeks in uh, the El Dorado Hotel in Reno. And, uh, yeah, it was a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. And I, from regards to advice, I mean, I think, <clears throat> I think it, exactly what I said, just, you know, build it and they will come. You know, it, it's weird that you never think you're ready until... You always think you're ready before you really are, you know. I, I'd sort of had those couple of opportunities with the illusionists, whatever. I'd gone, oh, well, obviously this is not the thing for me. I'm just going to continue doing my thing and just keep moving. And uh, and then they kind of found me themselves, you know. So, and you know, it, I don't know how long they will, you know, I will work for them. It's... It, and however long that whole experience lasts is great. It's been a lot of fun. I can't wait to get on tour. With it. I mean, it, just for a magician, for any performer to be in a show with that level of production, that level of budget, that um, 
that level of you know interest and and exposure is just amazing so yeah super excited and very different to anything i've done because i've been pretty much a one-man band most of the time up until now so and will you make tweaks to the act to the paul debeck that, that we see on stage when you're on such a big stage as that or will you be doing kind of your working routines at that point will things need to be tweaking or will you in a position that you can go out and you can do uh, your working material well certainly from the stuff i've done up until now i try to stick to my road tested material obviously when you're playing for a bigger crowd there's certain tweaks that need to be done but the actual material i try and keep to what is fail safe and bulletproof one of the people that i'm kind of um covering for i guess is is jeff hobson who anyone knows of jeff is you know and i mean he is just the absolute highlight of that show everywhere he goes because it is small intimate simple magic plots and magic effects that's just so much personality and so well honed and so well crafted and there's plenty of spectacle in that show so it, it needs those intimate comedy moments that aren't too complicated so i have to work a little bit to learn to work with the camera because you do a lot of live camera work in the show so um when the venues are really big, when you might want to look out to the audience, you're actually looking over to your camera guy. Uh, the last guy I worked in uh, the Middle East, Marty, we we bounced off each other. It was great because he's following you around all the time. So we start to know when to look down the lens, when to when to look at the audience. So that's a, that's a little learning curve. Off the back of this initial run in Reno and the work that you're doing with The Illusionist, it, it's resulting in quite a big move, uh, as you hinted at earlier. We're sat in your central London flat um, <laughs> at the minute, but but you have upsticked and, and, and headed to the States. Yes, yeah, we moved over to LA back in May, straight off the back of, of The Illusionist side in the Middle East. We move out to Los Angeles. Yeah, we're playing the LA game a little bit, so it's, it's a lot of fun. Yeah, and it's great. It's sunny. It's nice. You know, I mean, it doesn't have Lawrence Abel or Ed Kane, you know, but um, yet. Uh, but yeah, it's great. It's a lot of fun. It's uh, nice to be away from the rain and just excited to see what happens. It's just a very, very early days at the moment. So just enjoying being there and being part of that whole scene. The number one podcast for great stories from the world of magic, circus, comedy, and variety. You're listening to Talking Tricks. Wow, what a great interview. Paul has been uh, so giving, and I hope you've all enjoyed it so far. Huge news that he'll be joining the cast of The Illusionist on that next tour that they'll be on. The Illusionist is a show that holds dear to our heart. As, uh, when it was last in London at the Shaft, we demonstrated the tricks they have for sale in the lobby after the show so it's great to know that Paul's now joining that and good luck to Paul if you want to hear more breaking news from interviewees please do us a favour subscribe to the podcast Talking Tricks on iTunes or Podbean and you will get exclusive interviews and exclusive news every week and we're also going to be launching the occasional sneak podcast so it's really worth subscribing now coming up Paul is going to talk to us about everything from performing for millionaires in Las Vegas to performing street shows in Chester and making just three pounds. He even tells us his llama story. Well, talking of shows, we did a fun one last night, didn't we? We went a great walk to a night called My Mate's Jokes Brings the Folks to the Yards in Islington at the Tap Room, to be more specific, which is a, a monthly night organised by our mate Katie Pritchard. 
where she basically collects all of her friends and puts on a alternative comedy night. So it's a fun one for people that like to watch a little bit of comedy, but not straight stand-up, I suppose. Um, so there was lots of really good musical comedy on last night, and um, she often has any friends that are magicians on there as well. So yeah, that was a fun, fun show. Fun show for us to do. Uh, yeah, great host, Katie. We'll try and get her on the podcast. I think at some point that might be quite nice. But back from a show about mates to our best mate, Paul Debeck. There's some great buildings, places, establishments in the LA. In the LA. In, in LA. the LA. Into LA. Into LA. Into LA. Um, what does Paul Debeck get up to there? Is it, is it nights at the Magic Castle followed by big sandwiches at Cantor's or are you down on the Hollywood Boulevard? <laughs> Tell you what, Paul De Beck tries not to talk about Paul De Beck in the third person too much because that is the reason why people shouldn't move to LA. Uh, no, I uh, yeah, I go down to the, I've been down to the castle a few times. Everyone's been super welcoming and lovely there. We haven't been there an awful lot, to be honest with you. It's been it's just it's typical. You know, when I moved to London, I ended up on the road a lot, and now I've moved to LA. I'm going to be on the road quite a bit for the next few months. But uh, we're in Santa Monica, so it's it's quite chilled it's nice it's a nice base weather's nice not too hot not too cold a little bit too much yoga for my liking a little bit too much yoga and matcha green tea and not quite enough pints of beer but you know we're working on that there must be a british pub you can find. oh there is or open oh yes yes there is a british pub there's a couple of british pubs in santa monica there's more brits in santa monica than london i think (laughs) there's loads of brits there obviously working for the american market's a little bit different so uh, I thought I'd take this opportunity while I can and, and, and see how we go out there. And something else uh, uh, exciting that's, that's happened since you've been out there was you, you worked with, with Magic Live at, at that event, hosting. That's right. I believe, kind of tell us a little bit about that. The main reason I wasn't in Edinburgh for the fall festival was I got invited by Stan Allen to go and host the uh, Wednesday night closing show at Magic Live, which was great. It was lovely to be at that convention because I've never been able to go because I'm always in Edinburgh. You know, I grew up going to Blackpool Magic Convention. I think that's where we've done most of our partying over the years, isn't it, Lawrence? And uh, I'll save some of that for when I get to interview you on this podcast. <laughs> but uh, that's what we can play. Did Lawrence Abel do this or did Johnny Vegas do this? But, <laughs> um, I've never had a bike kid in my life. <laughs> Purely a cider, man. It was really weird because going to Blackpool, you obviously go to Blackpool and a few of your magic idols turn up because they're booked on the shows. But at Magic Live, it's just like just people walking around that aren't even on the shows that are just at Magic Live because it's in Vegas because you can't you know throw a penny without hitting a magician in Vegas. So everybody lives there. So I'm just walking around and there's Johnny Thompson walking around and there's, you know, Chris Angel was walking around, David Copperfield was there, you know. So Siegfried, it was, yeah, so it's amazing to see all these famous magicians just wandering around and, and, a, and a lot of idols. Matt King was there and, you know, who is just, for me, like, up there at one of my all-time favourite magicians. So... 
So yeah, it was really nice to be around that and be able to be part of that and uh, very kind of Stan to uh, ask me to do that. So yeah, I enjoyed it. You didn't let them get off lightly. There was a bit of uh, British rib taking, a bit of <laughs> Mickey taking going on in, in your performances. Yeah, of course. Uh, might be a little bit. I mean, I think, I think they like that. I think they like a little bit. You can get away with a little bit here and there, you know. You only got to watch Ricky Gervais on the uh, Oscars or the Golden Globes to see that they'll they'll take a little bit of British banter now and again. So you got to try and uh, dish a bit out. <laughs> and you've kind of mentioned organically during this conversation some of your idols, but I don't want to let any go go by that have had a real impact on your career. So who have been some of some other performers that have really um, influenced you? Yeah, it's weird this because people always say, you know, they always say, well, who's your favourite magician? Or lay people ask you that a lot. And I'm, I find it so hard because there's very few people that they'd know that I would. But I mean, for sure, Wayne Dobson. Wayne's a really great friend and a wonderful human being and a very giving, helpful, kind performer. So I'm very, very honoured to have, you know, really benefited from time with him and from being just pals and be you know so Wayne's got to be up there and Wayne just had a great way about him you know I just exactly that you take small simple tricks and simple plots and just make them play for thousands of people and I just I think that is that is one of the greatest things about magic is is you can take something so simple and make it so entertaining. And like by the same vein, Matt King is like a huge, huge hero of mine. Back home in the UK, well, I grew up watching Paul Daniels on, on TV. There's no doubt he, what he did. He created a huge interest in magic here in the UK. I still love manipulation and, and dove magic and, you know, Marco Carvo, James DeMare, Greg Fruin grew up watching all of those guys. Williamson just goes without saying. David Williamson, just absolute genius. Funny bones, absolute, just complete and utter funny bones. A big love of a lot of the older acts from yesteryear, you know, Carl Ballantyne, oh gosh, uh, Fred Capps. So there's, there's, there's some to go YouTube if you haven't heard of any of those names. And outside of the magic world, I know you're, you're a big fan of... Um... Terry Alderton, for example. Yes. Talk to me about, about what you love so much about him. Terry Alderton. Well, you know, Terry Alderton, if you do not know Terry Alderton, immediately go and, um, and search for him online. But uh, even, even the online stuff can't do justice to just how good he is in person. But yeah, it's just very surreal, very, very well written, very, very well crafted, completely original and just so character driven and i just love it it's electric when you watch him it's absolutely electric when you start to see when you start to see the edges peeling back or him breaking down it's just it's amazing yeah huge fan of terry alderton big acts like ricky gervais i liked a lot of russell brand's early stuff george carlin i just love comedy i mean it's, it's just it depends you know what mood you're in doesn't it you know it's to say like oh well it's like trying to re say your favorite song or your favorite musician depends what mood you're in doesn't it lately i've been watching um eliza Schieslinger. she's on netflix she's very 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 funny but yeah we get to see lots of great comedy doing the, the fringe festivals 
um, as as you know, because we've been doing them together for some time now, haven't we? And um, Cubs on tour. Cubs on tour. Naughty little mischievous Cubs. And you mentioned obviously Magic Live was in Vegas. I kind of want to talk about Las Vegas as a place and some of the Las Vegas. Las Vegas. <laughs> More like um, Las Vegas. Some of the experiences you've had there, obviously. Pretty- <laughs> Well, we can't do that here. That would be way too incriminating. <laughs> but for many Las Vegas, for many Americans, I, I guess, Las Vegas is somewhere that you might go on a, on a bachelor party. But, but for you, it's been somewhere that you, you've gone out and forged relationships and, and performed out there, there a few times yourself. Kind of talk to me about kind of when you first went out to Las Vegas and some of the, some of the experiences. <sighs> the first... <laughs> Now we get into the meat of the conversation. Uh, no, the first time I went out to Vegas, I think I was about 19 years old because I was working on cruise ships. I started uh, doing flyouts for cruise ships when I was about 19, 20. So I went out just to see shows and I couldn't drink. I couldn't gamble out there because it's 21. So I just went out and I, I can't remember. I must have seen about 12 or 13 shows in about five days. Then I really didn't know anything other than going and seeing shows but I was just so blown away it was the early days of Cirque du Soleil and things and I saw just these incredibly ornate shows because I'd not seen a show that ha- that was a resident show before you know everything I'd seen would had come through theatres or maybe in the West End which to a certain extent is resident but when you look at the residencies of Cirque in Vegas it's just incredible what they've built out there so yeah i started going out there and like any magician it was the dream to go and perform in vegas and then i spent some time hanging out with a buddy of mine who i met for another good friend of mine paul nathan started hanging out with a buddy called rj owens who's uh, the star of mystere in in vegas and so in between traveling around, I would go and stay and uh, roommate with him. And then that led to doing some work down at the Inspire Theatre, which is down by Fremont Street uh, for Tony Shea, who's a guy who owns Zappo Shoes in, uh, in America, which is a huge multi, multi, multi-million dollar company. And so I did a couple of gigs there, hosted his birthday party, which was very fun because Penn and Teller were on the bill. So I got to introduce Penn and Teller, which was just like a dream come true. And uh, it was a very weird gig because Tony loves llamas. So I was on stage introing Penn and Teller. And whilst I'm looking at this audience, I look up, glance up to the balcony, to the private box. And there's a llama just staring down at me from the theatre as if sitting watching the show. Yeah, it was a real crazy... Because Just because if you're a multimillionaire and it's your birthday, why not have a llama at your birthday? May as well. So, yeah, did a couple of shows there and, uh, and sort of have been back into yearly since and then had the pleasure, the, the great, great pleasure of attending your boy's 30th birthday there. Just, just what, last year, year before? And... What a joyous occasion that was. Fun was had by all. Fun was had by all. And we saw Matt King and David Copperfield. We did, we did. And uh, what else? We saw lots of things. We saw saw RJ, Big Fat Baby. Big Fat Baby in in this there. Big Bibby. So does the... um, (coughs) I I would imagine the Illusionist tour doesn't... Doesn't go through Las We Vegas. are going through Vegas, actually. It's, um, we're going through Vegas, but not in the way that most people would think. We're going through Vegas to do one night at the Smith Centre. So the Smith Centre is a beautiful theatre 
but it's built for people in Vegas, i.e. locals. I mean, anyone can go, but it's it's built the same as your local, you know, if you went to the Globe or, you know, so it has touring shows come through it. So uh, we are doing a Vegas date, which will be exciting, but it won't be on the Strip. They had a show on the Strip, uh, Circus 1903, which is a beautiful show, which was at uh, the Paris, I think. Um, that's now on tour. But, uh, yeah, Vegas, long-term shows in Vegas, it's a whole other game. Uh, you know, a couple of my friends are now doing it, some of them as cast members in bigger shows, and some of them forewalling and putting their own show on. There. And I think that's, you know, admirable. But, oh, gosh, I can't imagine the stress and the strain when you've got to hire the theatre and, you know, in such a competitive market. And obviously very happy, you know, with, with the upcoming tour, it's a dreams tour to be on, on with The Illusionist. But is there a part of you that would still enjoy to have your own show in Vegas and the 10 shows a week or, or whatever it is and living in the desert? Ah, I, uh, yeah, I mean, always. I mean, I'm not sure I'd want to sign like five or 10 years in something, but I mean, I just went over and um, last time we were over, I saw Piff's show. And uh, he's like he's done so well for himself, you know. Put in, a, played the game so well, and 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 worked so hard. And he's in an incredibly great room for comedy and magic. And he's there. I think he plays the weekends, and then he goes and tours the rest of the U.S. Uh, midweek, which I think is a great way to do it to stop yourself going crazy from doing the the same gig night after night after night. But then I see, you know. Um, Mac has been there for years. He's just uh, signed another, however many years, renewed his contract there as well. And, you know, I don't think I've ever seen him do a bad show. So I guess it just depends on the performer. Yeah, I think five more years is what uh, Mac signed up to as his uh, daughter's college fund. (laughs) (laughs) That's the way he's... That's what the the press release says. (laughs) Something I find very um, inspiring... Uh, about you is the fact that you will go and do these giant big shows all over the world um you'll probably be able to tell us how many countries continents i think it's all continents that you've performed in but you'll still come home and if you've got some downtime you can be found out on the streets (laughs) absolutely Um, and there's a lot of people who i think see street performing as a, a step up to something else Others are very happy with it as a career, but it's something you always come back to. Talk to me about what first led you to, to street performing and, and about your relationship with it. Okay, so yeah, I've, had a, I've kind of flirted with street performance on and off over the years. My first performance on the street was in Chester when I lived in Oswestry, which is a little border market town in Shropshire. Small town in Shrewsbury. It's a small town in Shropshire that's not Shrewsbury. There's a little. We're from we're we're from different towns in the same county, so there's a little bit of uh, competitiveness there, isn't there? But uh, anyway, so I travelled up from Oswestry Street with two of my buddies to basically bodyguard me because I was panicked that someone was going to mug me or make fun of me. Must have been about fourteen, thirteen, fourteen, <clears throat> and I'd seen a street performer called AJ James, who is a really good friend of mine now, I'm glad to say. I'd seen him and just gone, wow, this guy's amazing. He was doing kung fu and backflips and escapology, escaping from chains. And 
and everyone was going crazy and I was just like this is amazing so I at the time was doing all my pretty pretty magic so I kind of put together this silent show I think I was doing like the razor blade swallow and and uh, linking rings to probably to tubular bells or something terrible like that anyway I, I took my little ghetto blaster with the batteries in up to Chester and I tried to do a couple of shows and it was I wouldn't say it was a disaster just no one stopped or people stopped and walked on I made three pounds or something and I didn't do street performing again for like two or three years and then I I studied a little bit more of how it worked and I started doing more comedy and I started street performing in Chester just very small shows little suitcase no mic and it was just a great way to get out and perform when I wasn't touring or working. And I was living in Chester for a while, for about five years. So it was a beautiful city to work in. And I'd go out and do my money. And it was lovely during the summer holidays and things. Uh, and then it wasn't really until I started going to Edinburgh Fringe Festival that I really started to take it seriously. And um, the street's the best. It's great. It's wonderful. You know if you're good or you're bad. Um, and it's a challenge, it's a totally different game. It's not like just having a good show, you know. It's got psychology and crowd control and timing and just tenacity and cheekiness and, and I love it. And it's so raw. Um, and it doesn't have to be seen as you didn't make it. I think sometimes performers bring that on themselves that view i i think you can you can play a high status character or not even a high status character but a well-groomed high status character and still get paid really well on the street or get paid better so yeah and i moved to london moved to covent garden and i mean covent garden certainly to look at is one of the best pitches in the world it, it is a theater you know you've got a balcony of people up in the pub in the punch and judy looking over the piazza you've got a proscenium arch of the of st paul's the the church and uh and the stalls and it's just it's it's a great great pitch to work and <clears throat> it's not easy it took me a long time to start to learn to crack it but there's some great people down there and uh, i was living in covent garden and I, I was, yeah, it was good. I was making a good living doing street performing when I wasn't traveling and doing other things. So I still, and, I, and just now, you know, we, we just talked about it. I just finished signing contracts, really nice contracts for the, for the next six months of work. But still, I, I've just done a weekend of street shows here in London and loved it. Yeah. Is there, a, is there an addiction to it for you? I think there is a little bit, yeah. Yeah, I think there is. I think um, I've only ever known performing and uh, I love it. And if I don't do it, I get lost or down. So, yeah, I think there is for sure. So that performing might be, it's not that I'm addicted to street performing or addicted to acting or addicted to being a magician. I think I'm just addicted to performing in general. That's why I called the show Look At Me, because... Ever since I was a kid, that's what I've been doing in one way or another. So, yeah. I wonder if you were to kind of give advice to a young performer and, you know, it could be magic or it, it could be anything, you know, that someone that wants to perform, and I think you maybe just touched on 
probably what I would say is the best bit of advice there, which is just to get out and do it and work as much as possible. And that's mm. kind of a cliched response. I, I wonder if, A, that is your answer, or B, if you've got a better answer than Well, that I think it, advice. T- it ties into the street very much, because the great thing about work, if you learn to work on the street and you can work on the street the great thing is you can get out and do it again and again and again so much quicker than if you are booked on a you know charity show or variety show or something you've got to wait for the next one to come around before you can do it again it's why you know comics even really big name comics go around working all the open mic spots or they'll do two or three a night dashing around the city to get on and and try the material again because until you actually do it you can't you have you know how it is you can think of everything and then you do it and you go oh shit i didn't think about that that's just happened or this has just happened you've just got to get those flight hours in final question what's the best piece of advice you've ever been given from a fellow performer Oh, I wish you'd asked me this one before. The best piece of advice I have ever been given. There are no bad audiences. I think the old quote would be, well, yeah, but you've never worked the Glasgow Empire on a Saturday night or whatever. But I think it's at least it's, it's at least a really good mantra to live by because, of course, sometimes you just... You try everything you can and there's just somebody... The, the, Something's not right. One person in the audience has defined the whole audience mood by being a prick or something. Of course it happened, but by and large, even then, it's your job to shift for them, not theirs to shift for you. And and I don't mean that you should change what you do, but I just think every time you have a tough audience... I come off and go, wow, I tried everything I thought I could. And then on reflection, I go, I should have done this, or I should have done that, or I should have been a bit softer, or I should have, should have pushed them a bit harder, or I should have been a bit kinder, or I did go out with a bit too much fire at the beginning or whatever. I think that's probably massively uh, attached to more comedy-based acts. But I try and keep that in my mind all the time, <clears throat> so as I don't... I think it keeps your feet on the ground. I think it also keeps you continually asking the right questions about what you do. So, yeah, that would probably be the one. Great advice to end on. Paul DeBeck, thank you very much. Oh, yeah, that and uh, don't leave your watch in the dressing room. (laughs) Oh, wait. Oh, no. I did say we had another DeBeck. Oh, no. Or DeBeck. Oh, the... Just about time. Oh, are you sure your your reel to reel is not about to run out, is it? Dabek or Dubek? Once caught short on the way to a gig (laughs) and had to empty my bowels in a shoebox, which I then carried into the venue. (laughs) Paul Dubek or Anton Dubek? Ah, you. 
Well, what a, what a way to end our interview there with Paul Debeck. I think that little game there, uh, Debeck or Dabek, definitely ran its course. Uh, we hope you enjoyed that. A really great interview, I felt, for us to kick off this podcast. And throughout this uh, podcast series, each week we'll have some funny interviews, we'll have some more serious interviews. And, and looking ahead at next week, we're going to be getting a little bit macabre. We're going to be chatting to another great uh, double act, Griffin and Jones, ahead of their shows at the Brighton Horror Festival uh, in a few weekends time so we're going to get all the information from them. We'll also be looking ahead to the We Are Most Amused and Amazed Magic and Variety Show, a very long title with a bit of a tongue twist to there which I'm sure you've all heard about. It's to uh, celebrate the Prince of Wales's 70th birthday. Um, we obviously all know he's a huge fan of magic and variety and um, there's some very exciting acts and I think that's going to be a, a very good TV show, isn't it really? So make sure you subscribe to Talking Tricks on iTunes and Podbean so you never miss an episode. But for now, thank you for listening.